What's up? Good morning. It's Thursday, May 14th, and you're listening to the College Football Daily. My name is Trey Scott. Got a grab bag episode of sorts coming right up for you. Charles Power, national analyst at 24-7 Sports, is going to join us, and we're going to start by answering some listener mail. We're calling it mail. It's really just an Apple podcast review. We've had a lot of increased activity recently on Apple Podcasts. I love to see that. I I check every single day, a few times a day. Do we have any new five-star ratings? Helps us out tremendously. Do we have any reviews? Helps us out tremendously. Not just for the algorithm, but for content ideas. And this entire episode, or at least the start of it with Charles, is built around this question. What are you hiring when when you look for a coach? Do you want someone with scheme? Do you want someone who's a proven recruiter? Charles has the answer is pretty obvious. Not that you can't be both, but you're looking for schemes. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this scuttlebutt that Alabama might not be playing USC in week one and that it might be playing TCU and that TCU might not be playing Cal in week one. And it does seem like everything on the West Coast is unfurling at a little bit of a different, slower speed than the rest of the country in this coronavirus era. And we're going to talk about that with Charles too. The interesting implications of an Alabama versus TCU game, they're on tap. Not mention it in this inter- in this conversation with Charles that that will be recorded a few days ago is, but relevant to the West Coast conversation is four-star quarterback Miller Moss. Just saw a story by Steve Wolfong of Twenty Four Seven Sports. Miller Moss his, has been racking up summer school classes the last few years he's a four-star in 2021 and he has enough summer school classes to potentially reclassify to the class of 2020 and enroll out of college this fall if there is no high school football in california that's something to track alabama is a finalist lsu is a finalist they could get his services or a school like michigan could jump in for him too because moss's other finalists usc and ucla they don't know if they're going to be playing football either. So this is potentially, as we work through, will there be football, will there not be football, how will we play? It's becoming kind of clear that the country is split a little bit. So what happens next will be rather fascinating to see. So we're going to talk about that split with Charles, Alabama versus TCU, maybe with Charles. We're going to talk about transfer ratings as well. We'll get right to it. All right, bringing in Charles Power now. Charles, I guess you're doing pretty good again. I, you know, it's tough to ask how you doing right now during the quarantine. What Netflix shows you watching? Because we've been doing this now for a few months, and it's just kind of same old, right? Yeah, I actually circled back to watching like like bits and pieces of Mad Men, which I probably, oh man, I probably watched that. I think I actually caught up with it when it was still on TV. So I, I would finish it a, several years ago, but I started like watching like bits and pieces of that again because I just get tired of like random movies so i needed something just like like a a kind of more of like a droning show to escape on a little bit (laughs) so that's where i'm at right now i read an article that Mad Men had been getting a lot of repopularity as a as a show to watch during a quarantine i was surprised i watched it in college too and i just kind of thought i would never watch it again so personally i've been watching waco staying in big 12 territory Uh, for myself but yeah so so thanks for coming on. We're going to start with some reader, one reader question. This is from TC1. I'm not going to ask the whole thing. 
Um, this is a North Carolina fan. Charles, I'll give you the cliff notes and and then let's just kind of launch into it. So this person, uh, they talk about, they, they had wanted originally North Carolina to hire a young up and coming coach when it was time to, to make a hire after the Larry Fedora era. And wanted a young up and coming coach, maybe with some offensive chops, like a, a Lincoln Riley, a poor man's Lincoln Riley. And instead they got Mac Brown and maybe he was a little disappointed of it in it, but seeing, seeing the success on the, on the field and on the trail has this person who, who is TC one second guessing his theory. So he wants to, he wants to know, he would love to hear our take on this. When conducting a coaching search or building a program, should a school value recruiting over scheme? And then we're going to, once you answer that, Charles, we have two more North Carolina related questions, but so, so should a school value recruiting or scheme? Is this chicken or egg? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah, I, I was, I agree on that. I think they're closely tied together. I think making a hire strictly off of recruiting and with a scheme kind of lagging behind, we've, we have like dozens of recent examples of that not working. So if I was going to be wary of any one um, direction, I would say prioritize heavily. And this is coming from a recruiting guy. Prioritizing prioritizing recruiting at the uh, detriment of the scheme and just the on-field coaching is is uh, kind of a fool's errand. Um, but I I do think, like you said, Trey, I think they they are mutually exclusive. And when you kind of marry the recruiting um, strategy footprint, the kind of players you can get at the school with a scheme that optimally utilizes them and um, really kind of takes advantage of any kind of any um, any kind of competitive advantage you might have with the kind of players you can get and the the scheme um, if it if it kind of maybe goes against the grain of, of teams in your conference. Uh, I, I think that's ideal. Like I, you think of, th- there are certain schools like, you know, the schools like like Wisconsin. It, it behooves wh- whoever coaches at Wisconsin to have a very uh, line of scrimmage focused scheme, like a power run scheme, because they they're the kind of players that that they get there. Um, you know, the offensive linemen grow on trees in, in Wisconsin, so you really want to have a, a scheme that that utilizes that. I think if you're in Florida, if you look at the teams. The, the, the Florida teams among the big three that have really uh, kind of won national championships, the, the scheme is varied a little bit. Like you see Urban Meyer's scheme is different from Steve Spurrier's, but they were all kind of predicated on getting athletes in space and taking advantage of, of the players that they can get. So I think to me, that's where, like, that would be like the ideal hire. Um, I, I do think that sometimes we can overrate, um, you know, kind of projecting recruiters. Like I remember when like uh you know like we, we see this all the time like i remember when like uh notre dame was looking at hiring brian kelly from cincinnati the question was like oh can he recruit he's been at cincinnati and he's all he's recruited pretty well at notre dame um i, I think it's just a lot of its effort and organization and um you know maybe, maybe history recruiting a certain area might not be um might be a little overrated like Nick Saban coming to LSU from Michigan State he hadn't recruited in the south before um, but he was organized and and put his staff together and had effort and and I would argue I would just to put a bow on that I, I would say you know Mac Brown came to to UNC and he hired uh, Phil Longo as his, as his offensive coordinator and Jay Bateman as his defensive coordinator and those are two 
young, um, kind of you know progressive coaches with with innovative schemes. So I I don't think um, I think Mac Brown. It's not like he's running uh, like a, a stale um, scheme in, in, in Chapel Hill either. So I think it's kind of a good a good fit with both. So the scheme question as it relates to recruiting footprint. How does that make us feel about Scott Frost, who is, by all accounts, a really great coach? But if he's recruiting for that scheme, it's probably really difficult to get that type of player in Nebraska. So he's got to go to Florida or Texas or California, which is outside of Nebraska's recruiting footprint. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. And, you know, um, I think there's a couple ways you could look at that because the the good Nebraska teams – did recruit from those areas like you think of like Tommy Frazier was from Florida uh Turner Gill one of their other great quarterbacks was from Texas uh Lawrence Phillips was from California so they were recruit they were bringing those guys into Nebraska um it's not like they they, they kind of had their in-state guys that were kind of their walk-ons and whatnot but um their best players historically were, weren't from Nebraska so they're gonna have to kind of recruit nationally anyway um I, I I do think like you know Scott Frost's scheme hinges on a running quarterback. And I do think if, if you look at schools where you might have trouble getting a lot of, um, a lot of top players in, just kind of naturally just from within your uh, immediate footprint, I, I think running a scheme with that utilizes a running quarterback can kind of be a, uh, a, a an equalizer. Um, so I, I don't know. It w- it'll be interesting to see like, I think some of that also maybe factors in with defense. I think that it, with them, a lot of it might be just getting some athletes on defense as well. But, um, you know, they went heavy in Florida this last cycle. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But I, I'm not sure. Like, Nebraska is, a, is kind of an interesting question on, on the scheme thing. I, I could see it going either way, to be honest. I'm trying to think of the coaches who have been hired as, as the recruiting guys, just not really having maybe – a scheme background or, or recruiting at least overshadowing it. And I'm thinking of Mike Jinx at Bowling Green didn't work out. I'm thinking of Frank Wilson at UTSA started off pretty well and, and didn't, didn't work out. I hate, hate to leave it there too, but I'm, I'm trying to think Frank Wilson was the first one that popped to mind to me. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe I think if he, he kind of was running like a, Kind of a pro style under center scheme. I think he maybe like had like Al Borges was his OC at one or Frank. He, he was running a pro style in Texas, in, and it, in it just essentially didn't, the middle of Texas, right? Oh. It, yeah, and it just didn't it didn't didn't mesh. And they kind of had some uh, some quarterbacks uh, like they had like Lowell Narcisse was their quarterback who didn't even like he was a bounce back from LSU and he didn't even start at the JUCO he went to. So. Um, yeah, I was looking at their roster going into last year and seeing you know, they were playing at quarterback. It's like, ah, this probably probably going to end well. <laughs> so, um, when, yeah. When Charlie Strong took over at Texas in 2014, him and Vance Bedford, the defensive coordinator, were really anti-spread offense. And Vance Bedford, I remember tweeting, and he was a pretty accomplished defensive coordinator at Louisville, but he was tweeting things, things about like anti-Johnny Manziel as far as you know, you can go to AM and play in that offense and whatever, but we're gonna we're gonna like we are Teddy Bridgewater's scheme. Like we're gonna we're gonna create a more sustainable quarterback that the NFL wants, which kind of flies in the face because they were both drafted in the same area. But 
they were very anti spread offense and it absolutely backfired. Charlie strong ended up totally having a reverse course and, and hiring Sterling Gilbert, which was really one of the only good decisions he made, but absolutely uh, recruiting to your footprint is a really interesting point that you brought up. And then the last one, Charles, for this question, we already know how UNC is making this amazing turnaround. Sam, Howe, Mac Brown, you mentioned the defense, uh, the, uh, Phil Longo and, and Bateman, but do you think UNC can eventually overtake Clemson and the ACC? This is a loaded question. They're making a lot of good recruiting progress, Charles. They almost beat them last year. They're number three now in, in the national recruiting rankings for 24-7 sports. I'm sure eventually Clemson will pass them up, but things are going really well. Can UNC ever overtake Clemson? And you are allowed to just say no. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you ever say never, but there's really no end in sight in Cle- of Clemson being a, a national power, I think the the bigger the, the first step for UNC is to really become the 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 primary challenger to Clemson to establish yourself as you know we're the team that they're that they're going to play uh, for the ACC title every year like that. I think taking that step first, um, and then you know then you ha- have some competitive games with them, or you know maybe even beat them at some point. Like then you maybe have the the conversation, but we're a long ways off from that. I think the first step for, for, for North Carolina is, you know, them continuing to upgrade their, their talent, their roster, and um, having that translate over to the field consistently. I mean, we're only in year one or coming off of year one. So I think making the ACC championship game, um, which is very doable uh, if, if you're, if you're good. Uh, so I, I think that's probably the first step. All right, well, thanks to listener TC1 for the suggestion. And it's that easy, everybody. If you just leave us a five-star rating and a review of what you want to talk about, we're going to get one of our experts on to talk about it. So you can have a whole episode devoted to to your, your question, and we appreciate that content during these trying times. The College Football Daily will be right back. Alabama's got a week one game against USC. TCU's got a week one game at Cal. And it looks like the Pac-12 is not on the same page as the other four Power 5 conferences. It looks like the Pac-12 might be playing conference-only games. I mean, okay, we don't know. But conference-only games could be on the table in 2020. The state of Oregon might not have any fans in attendance or any sporting events at all in September. Los Angeles is looks like it's extending its it's shelter in place or it's stay at home order for the next few months. So we have no idea what's going to happen out, out there in the, in the pac 12. And that's leading to some speculation that TCU and Alabama, which could lose their week one opponents might just meet up on the field. TCU was set to go to Cal Alabama and USC. were going to play in Arlington. Paul Feinbaum was talking about this on his show Tuesday morning and, and TCU athletic director, Jeremiah Donati didn't quite deny it. He said, we're preparing to play Cal in week one. If we determine at some point that we cannot do so, we'll look at other options. That's what he told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. So as our TCU guy, sort of, I kind of wanted to, to get your <laughs> thoughts on this. And, and does TCU stack up better or worse with Alabama? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, my, my understanding, it, this is one of those deals where it's, it's such a fluid situation. I don't think anybody wants to come out and say this is what we're, this is what we're going to do because um, it's just it seems like at this point everybody's kind of guessing. But uh, my understanding is like if if, or if you were asking me like how is it going to shake out today, 
it does seem more likely that Alabama and TCU are going to play uh, in in Jerry World um, with, with, with the opener. It just we were talking about this before we went on. It just seems unlikely that you're going to have these games go off in California scheduled at the very at the very minimum. Um, but uh, in, in terms of kind of how they would match up, yeah, I mean, I, I I would expect Alabama to be a multiple touchdown favorite in the game. If I was I was, I was thinking about Alabama like, was already Alabama was already an early projected 13 and a half point yeah so I, I I would say with TCU it would be like 17 to 21 if not more um probably maybe closer to 21 like 19 or 20 or something like that um but uh yeah it'll be interesting I, I think that the biggest question for TCU coming into that game was that they're replacing a lot of starters on the offensive line to being able to block Alabama up front I think when you look at um, a lot of these early games that, that Alabama has played in, um, they, they tend to, they can kind of overwhelm teams at the line of scrimmage. Uh, I think of that that game against USC uh, a couple years ago when, when Max Brown was a starter. Max Brown and Blake Barnett were actually the starters in that game, and then uh, Blake Barnett quickly gave way to Jalen Hurts. Um, but uh, in, in the Alabama just kind of just goes smash mouth on you, and I would expect a heavy dose of, of Najee Harris in that game as well. But the interesting, one of the interesting aspects of that game to me is, you know, how, like are, how much chances is Bryce Young going to have to kind of maybe make an impact and, um, you know, kind of challenge for that starting spot at Alabama. I would think the, any kind of shortened off season would, would, um, you know, bode well for Max Mac Jones getting, you know, most of the snaps. But historically, Nick Saban, if it's a legit quarterback competition, he gives uh, you know, each of his uh each of the kind the guys that are in the mix, he'll they'll ride it out a, a couple games. So I could see that maybe happening too. So I think that's one of the more interesting storylines nationally because I think whoever kind of assumes that starter role for Alabama is gonna put up really big numbers and you're talking about, you know, uh the number one player in the country coming in and Bryce Young and then Mac Jones who um, you know, it, Alabama's offense put up points when, when he played against Auburn and Michigan. So, uh, I would be interested to see see that. And I think on the defensive side, I think TCU, um, you know, has has some really good players coming back. I think they probably have, you know, arguably at least the top safety duo in the country. Definitely in the Big Twelve, but maybe in the country, um, you know, a solid linebacker. It's just going like just from a roster standpoint, their depth is 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 uh, it's going to be tough to match up without with what Alabama's rolling out there. So that would kind of be my expectations for the game. But um, you know, it'd be interesting. It was the the chess match with Gary Patterson and Nick Saban would be fun, at least from an X's and O standpoint too. It's if I'm USC, if I'm a USC fan, obviously I want to play as many games as possible. But hey, we know what happened the last time USC played Alabama. It kind of. I mean, eventually it led the way for Sam Darnold, but this is a different situation here with USC. Keaton Slovis is an established guy. You, you don't want to lose by 45 and, and set your 2020 season off on a, on a horrible note. When Clay Helton, Helton has totally rebounded from two years of being a lame duck head coach, he's got just a ton of momentum right now, and you'd almost hate to lose all that and, and have a, what year was it, 2017 Alabama versus Florida State game where Alabama just, you know, KOs Florida State right in week one. I I hate to do it, but Zach Evans, you know, assuming everything happens on time, is is he a, is he is he a, a factor in the game? Start is he a factor in this game here? If he ends up at TCU, I I, I mean as, as he yeah. promises. Well, I, to to circle back to USC real quick, I I 
agree with you. Um, you know, I, I think for for their purposes, you this year obviously is huge for for Clay Helton and USC has kind of shown that they can, for for lack for lack of a better of a better word, be a little fragile um, in in these early season situations. So maybe getting their feet under them and uh, kind of you know establishing some some positive uh, you know momentum or just getting things rolling, uh, getting some confidence, I guess would probably be the best way to describe it. Um, would, would be good for them, uh, going into this year. Cause you, USC always, I feel like I look at their schedule every year and it's like, Oh man, this is a pretty tough schedule. So I, I don't think it would really, it, it might behoove them to like, I don't think they're going to like, if, if they traded out Alabama for somebody else, I think that would, would probably be better, um, for, for, for the Trojans. I, I think that they would maybe want to get their feet under them a little, a little more before, rolling out against Alabama. Um, but they obviously have a lot of talent. And there's a lot of potential there too. I want to follow up on that uh, since we're on the same page about USC. It is, as we look at all these games that could be impacted or at least have may, maybe have fans removed, it is going to be interesting to see like what games ended up swinging a coach's job. Like does Clay Helton removing these non-conference games, playing playing just the conference schedule, removing Alabama, a loss from his, from his resume here, save his job. Does Tom Herman and Texas have an easier time going to LSU in week two. If there are no fans, um, the, you know, what the, what, what, what goes on with Oregon here with, with a game against Ohio state up, up, up in the air, uh, Clemson versus Notre Dame in late November or in early November, that game's a lot easier at night without fans. So just a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff to think about, uh, here in, in addition to just the money aspect of the buyouts, but, Let's uh, I'll, I'll circle back to that Zach Evans question because I know you you reached out. You're itching to talk Evans. I mean, who this is? <laughs> we yeah. can't get enough Zach Evans. Yeah, I was just you know I I think it's it's an interesting fit for for both parties. Uh, like with, with with him, it look it looks like he's going to end up at 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 TCU. I I think it was it's funny. Like there have been times during this quarantine where I was thinking like, yeah, it's like we still don't know where Zach Evans is going to go. You know, it's, it's, it's like May and we still don't know where he's going to go. Um, which I, it, it was always going to be a deal where he was probably just going to show up somewhere and, and enroll. So I guess the timeline maybe wasn't too different, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it'll be, it'll be interesting. You know, I think being, uh, closer, closer to home, but, but not too far away on a smaller campus might be good for him. Um, and yeah, you know, being playing for an established coach like Gary Patterson has a has a statue outside of TCU Stadium, so I think it might be a deal where he has a lot of cachet there. So I don't think, you know, the fans or administration would be would be too upset uh, with or he just has like a longer leash, um, just in terms of like goodwill there. So that could I think maybe playing for a coach like that uh, would would help him as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like you know. There's no question Zach Evans is really talented. Um, I'm not ready to say he was the best running back in the country. I, I I think he was in the top three, and with with Bijan Robinson and Demarcus Bowman, I think you could make an argument for each of them. They kind of have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's uh, got to be, I would think, the most talented, or at least among the very most talented signees TCU's had in in recent history, and. I would think he would compete for carries pretty early. I don't know if you would throw him in the mix, like behind a kind of green offensive line and give him, you know, 15, 20 carries against Alabama, but I would expect him to get touches assuming he um, 
gets gets in there and and you know competes but i i think too you know one thing like the everybody talks about like zach evans issues and i feel like i feel like he's kind of getting a little bit of a bad rap but just like just reading like comments um you know people are like oh like i wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole just from from being around him a little bit and I, I don't know if chris hummer talked about this trey but like like zach evans problems were, were really kind of based off of like just dealing with authority um and and you know just kind of like struggling maybe with adversity like he, whenever his teams lost he kind of would would maybe go a little sideways um and stuff like that i but he it was this isn't a deal where i think he he's not entering college with like a rap sheet or anything like that so i feel like he's gotten a little bit um of a bad rap from the fans and, and maybe people were just being a little tired of of kind of the rec- up and downs following his recruiting um but but i don't think this was a deal where you're you're coming in with uh with, with a with a guy with uh, you know like a legal history that's not an issue so if he can kind Absolutely. of if he can you know i think if he can mature and you know get in a get in a good situation with with some some structure uh, I think it's a very real, real possibility, you know, he ends up being a, a good player, but it's just kind of up to him. And I think a lot of it's just kind of maturity and, um, you know, taking to guidance and a, a structured situation. But, um, you know, when he, when he has everything clicking, uh, he's obviously really talented and it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But, but I think it's kind of, that's kind of an important note to make because just reading comments and, and people's takes on it, uh, I think it's, made out a little worse than it was the, the bigger issue the biggest issue was just kind of he just it was more like repeated small incidents that that kind of um that kind of just you know snowballed a little bit on him but i it, there wasn't any one thing where it was legal or you know overly concerning um in a vacuum yeah chris hammer talked about sort of a lack of a father figure his grandfather was his father figure grandfather dies uh, i think before his junior season zach has a hard time dealing with that and so it would make sense that structure leadership discipline are all sort of things that that zach struggled with um and, and his recruitment too it, it's it was a bonkers recruitment and yeah. we're on the message boards enough anytime you upset i'm not even exaggerating a half dozen to a dozen fan bases you're going to have a reputation that is colored um, because, yeah. and Zach Evans was absolutely all over the place with his recruitment. In fact, it'd be kind of fun in this game if, if he plays Alabama. Right. Najee versus Zach Evans, you've got two of the more wild running back recruitments of the decade. And, and Zach Evans, Zach Evans was at one point considered heavy Alabama lean. Like I, you know, his, oh, yeah. his teammate Damian George um, committed and ultimately signed there. And I think a lot of people viewed them as a package deal for a while. Um, Zach so, said they were a package deal. Yeah. He's, I mean, he, he said that he told yeah. us that. So I, yeah, I, no, I, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. I think there was a, at least a, a period of time there where it looked like he was going to end up at Alabama. So I'm sure he would be chomping at the bit to, um, to, to, get some carries against them um but yeah in in circling back to his his recruitment like i remember covering reuben foster's recruitment really closely and it maybe wasn't quite as crazy as zach evans with as many teams but it was pretty crazy like that was definitely one of the crazy recruitments i covered i mean he had an auburn tattoo he showed up he left his official visit he left his official visit at auburn and showed up at alabama in the middle like on the middle of a saturday in january um 
So, I mean, that's about as wild as you could imagine. And he ended up having a really good career at Alabama, and that structure definitely helped him. Um, and you, you've seen it kind of go, you know, a little awry in the NFL. But within that, I think within that college um, setup where, you know, if you talk to, ever talk to a college football player, they're like, man, like my day is planned for me from, you know, the second I wake up from like 5 a.m. until I leave the facility. So that can help guys kind of make that transition. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Zach Evans, but I think that's just kind of an important important point to make. Charles, you have no idea how good that segue was just now, talking about Reuben Foster and his tattoo, because I want to talk about another guy with a tattoo that might you know be a painful reminder of what once was. JT Daniels, we're talking transfer ratings, we're talking transfer portal. He's got that Trojan tattoo on his calf. He's one of the top two rated transfers in the new 24-7 sports transfer ratings as a 96, tied with Cade Mays. I don't, you know, I, I don't, who's, I, I haven't read all 200 ratings, but I know you've, you were involved in this process. As we kind of get you out of here, you know, last topic of conversation being the transfer ratings. When you look at this, what stands out? I was sort of struck by the no five stars thing. I thought, I thought Cade Mays maybe was a, a five star as far as transfers go. Um, and I thought I thought maybe JT Daniels would be that guy too. And then maybe I was a little bit surprised that Derek King comes in behind KJ Costello with a 91 rating compared to a 95. But give us your your macro or your micro overview of the transfer ratings. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see with the quarterbacks. I think when you look at quarterback success with with transfers, a lot of times it's um, quarterbacks with more than one year to play. Uh, the 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 shining example of the grad transfer is, is obviously Russell Wilson, and I think that's just completely unrealistic for for everybody as a one year guy to come in because it was just a perfect situation with that offense. And Russell Wilson learned their playbook in like two or three weeks. Like that's just unreal. Like that's just I don't see that being replicated again. But you look at Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, your recent big transfers, they really saw it click. Um, after a year or two on campus. So I think that's important to note. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, like to me, really, one of the more interesting storylines, like this is the first, like this is one of the first years where we've had a lot of really high profile defensive transfers and there's not a lot of uh, uh, history with that. So I'm, and I'm inter- interested to see, and these guys are like NFL prospects. So I'm interested to see how quickly does Jabril, Jabril Cox take to LSU scheme as a linebacker? Like that's kind of a cerebral deal. Um, and, and coming in and, and learning that. I mean, because he was a guy who, if if he returned to North Dakota State and played really well, could maybe have been like a, even like a, a first-rounder or at least like a, a day-two pick. So he's making that jump. And I think he's certainly capable of, of playing really well, but, but we just haven't really seen this before a lot. And then like Quincy Roche at, at Miami, um, you know, he was one of the best defensive players in, in the group of five last year coming in and making an impact. So I'm really interested to see this is kind of a little bit of a test case of really talented defensive players, NFL prospects making a jump up to the power five. And, and like, I don't, we don't have a ton of history of that. So that I'm, that's one storyline that I'm kind of tracking with just like success rate um, with, with, with transfers. Um, so, so yeah. And then, and then obviously the quarterbacks are always going to kind of get the headlines with this. Um, I think Cade Mays is a, is a pretty safe bet. You know, he's, 
I would think I would think he's penciled in as a, as a like a day one starter at Tennessee. Uh, good upgrade. But like there's no and one thing is important to note too is that there's system scheme familiarity with the following Jim Cheney from Georgia to, to Tennessee. I think that's important. Uh, scheme is always a, a big deal, uh, especially with quarterbacks. So um, those are the kind of things I would track. Seeing how Jamie Newman looks in Todd Munkin's offense, because um, they were kind of running a little bit of a kind of a unique offense at, at, at Wake Forest. So I think that could maybe help him out being in kind of a more translatable offense at, at Georgia too. We see this sometimes in the NFL draft where, for instance, if the, the Chiefs back in the day, really great pass rush, still take D Ford, you're sort of uh, multiplying your strengths. We're kind of seeing that with Tennessee's offensive line or my, Miami's defensive line here where you, you say Tennessee is going to have a really good offensive line regardless of Cade Mays. And Miami and Gregory Rousseau and Jalen Phillips, another transfer who's as talented as it gets, was going to have a nice set of pass rushers anyway. So now those two programs are adding guys who can maybe lead the unit, but also be, be stars. It's kind of interesting because when you think about yeah. transfer portal, you think about, you, you know, plug in holes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's uh, schools approach trans the, the, the portal in, in different ways. It's kind of, you look at it from a need standpoint. And then also I, I think since we're, since we've seen more players hop in the portal, you kind of have the option of, like, like you said, kind of improving a strength and kind of going for best available player if you have if you have spots left. Um, so kind of w- within your eighty five scholarships or your initial counters with 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 the recruiting, um, kind of how that how the, those numbers work out too. So yeah, I think there's there's a couple ways to approach it for teams, but I think you're seeing like a lot of the top, kind of your power five, um, you know, uh, top programs are are definitely trying to at least. Get, you know, if they have spots, they're going to try to get as, as good of a player as possible. Cause that way you, you really can, you can kind of, there's not as much guesswork involved cause you can kind of pull up their college film and, and scout them and kind of let the, let, um, you know, the college, their first couple years in college almost do the evaluating for you a little bit. So there might not be as much guesswork involved with figuring out who's good and who isn't. All right, good stuff from Charles Power. Touched on a lot. We're going to let you get back to Mad Men. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, sounds good. All right, that's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. Again, smash that five-star rating button. Leave us a review. Tell us what we should talk about. For Charles Power, for our producer, Tony Levitt, I'm Trey Scott, and we will see you on Friday for the next edition of the College Football Daily.